0: It is my pleasure this evening to introduce our speakers. Um, Our first speaker, uh, Ian Farnan, is Professor of Earth and Nuclear Materials in the Department of Earth Sciences here at the University of Cambridge. His research involves the effect of radiation and water on materials used in radioactive waste disposal and nuclear power generation. We're we're very happy to welcome Jerry Thomas um, from Imperial College London. She is Professor of Molecular Pathology and, among many other things, also director of the Chernobyl Tissue Bank. Her research involves the molecular mechanisms involved in development of thyroid cancer, which is the only radiobiological consequence of the Chernobyl
1: accident. So if you'd like to give them
0: a warm Cambridge welcome, and I'll hand them.
1: Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, So the theme of the talks, we have two talks this evening. Um, The theme of these talks is um, putting radioactivity into perspective. And really what we we want you to do, we don't want you to to think that we we want to downplay the effect of large releases of radiation or large releases of nuclear energy, because obviously those are very disastrous things, but we want you to think about um, maybe nuclear energy uh, and natural radiation on on a level playing field with other forms of energy, medical procedures, uh, and, and so on. And especially, at least from my part of the talk, to take away that radioactivity is an intrinsic part of the planet that we live on. And we have evolved as a species in the presence of that radioactivity. Okay? Um, so let me start the talk. And what I'm showing you here, does anyone know what this is? It's a cloud chamber, correct. Um, so for those of you who don't know, a cloud chamber is uh, an enclosure where you, that's kept at, very, at quite low temperature and you have a saturated vapour of a low boiling point liquid. And then when a highly charged particle, such as one that's emitted in a a nuclear decay, passes through that vapour, it ionises the vapour, creates ionised molecules in the trail of the particle, and then the vapour condenses around that trail. So it's a bit like a vapour trail from a plane or something like that. And so we can see two types of trail here. We can see these very thin, long ones, those are from beta particles. Okay? So those are very energetic particles, but quite light, because the beta particle is an electron. Okay? So does isn't much mass, it goes a long way. Every so often, it might, depends when it loops around, you'll see a short, fat one. That's from an alpha particle. Okay? So the alpha particle um, is heavier, more highly charged, makes a wider track, and doesn't travel as far in, in there. That, that's an alpha particle, okay? that big, fat one in the middle. Um, there's also other radiation which can penetrate the cloud chamber, and that's cosmic rays, mainly muons. But in this image, we're looking straight down at the cloud chamber. So the, 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 the muons are probably going straight through. So we're not seeing many, many muon tracks, mainly alpha and beta. And so those, tra- th- those tracks are coming from atoms which are in the material of the cloud chamber. Okay, It's not possible for alpha, beta or alpha to get into the tra- chamber from outside. So what are they? Um, so, the two most likely, and I'm not, you know, I'm sort of supposing now, I'm not sure about this, is I, I've seen the cloud chamber. And if anyone, anyone wants to see it live working, this is one that we borrow from the Cavendish Laboratory f- fairly often for our um, science festival events uh, on Saturday. So, there's a nuclear CDT, Centre for Doctoral Training event on Saturday in Engineering, and you can look at this cloud chamber. I, I've seen it, there's a lot of plastic there, so there's a lot of carbon. And I think what the most of the beta decays are, are the beta decay of carbon-14, which naturally occurs in, in all carbon on Earth. And so in beta decay, you get a neutron which disintegrates into a proton and an electron. So it's that electron that's firing through the uh, cloud chamber, giving you the track, and an anti-neutrino. And the energy of that is measured in mega-electron volts. The short fat track I think, comes from radon. So there's always radon in the air, and our chamber is just, it's not sealed particularly well, so it'll have radon in it. Radon, probably all heard of, it's not good if you have it in your basement in Cornwall, whatever, um, because you can breathe it in. It's a gas, and it decays by dropping off a large, heavy particle, this alpha particle, um, leaving, in this case, you go from radon to polonium, and leaving an alpha particle, and that's a very energetic event. Again, measured in mega-electron volts. And what I want to emphasise about these decay events is when they occur, they occur with this very high energy. If you think about the, bar, the energy between atoms in a material, then those bonds have an energy of between 1 and 4 electron volts. So these energies are about a million times higher than that. And that has two real consequences. One is they're extremely easy to detect. So if you only have a small amount of a radioactive material, it's very easy to detect that very tiny amount. That's why we can trace things uh, to do with radio, radioactive materials at very, very low levels. The other the other thing, of course, is if you have a lot of these things. They produce large amounts of heat. And that heat can have consequences in, in various applications. And one of the... Th- Consequences for us on this planet is that lots of radioactive elements were incorporated into the solar nebula and then when the Earth condensed uh, and there was basically collisions into the Earth as it was forming, those collisions are providing energy and eventually we we get an Earth which is basically all molten, but quite a large amount of that heat energy which is making that planet molten in the very early Earth is coming from the radioactive decay. Okay, It's coming from radioactive decay of aluminium 26, which most of which has gone away, but also elements like potassium, or isotopes like potassium 40, thorium 232, uranium 235, uranium 238. Those are all things which occur on our planet, and those very energetic events, we have a lot of them, they deposit huge amounts of energy. And so you've got a molten Earth. Now one of the interesting things about um, the way that the Earth was, was formed, or rather determining the age of the Earth, is that Lord Kelvin, in the 19th century, decided that if the Earth was a molten ball like this, then he could actually determine what the age of the Earth was by the rate, by the time it would have taken it to cool, based purely on a conductive measurement of cooling. And he came up with the age of the Earth to be 98 million years. And this is the eight, uh, 19th century, and of course... At the same time, we all know people were finding fossils and evidence that the Earth was significantly older than that. Okay, and so that means that the uh, the, the, the the cooling uh, there had to be some other form of heat because the cooling rate didn't match the uh, the actual um, age of the Earth. And so the answer, part of the answer, and some for, a while, for quite a long period of time, people thought the whole answer was the presence of radioactive elements providing this extra heat as all these energetic events occurred within the Earth. But it's not the whole story, because, in fact, the mechanism of conduction is not the only cooling mechanism in the Earth. Okay? The mechanism of conduction has some effect, but there's also another mechanism, which is convection. Okay, So when you get very hot... Um, Rock close to the core of the Earth here, it expands, becomes buoyant, and comes up. And when it comes up, it sort of brings that heat with it. So that's another way in which the Earth cools. Now, there are this is an extremely rapidly developing area of, of Earth sciences, um, complex models of how that process occurs. But most of the current models of this complex process indicate that at least 50% of the heat, the heat engine, which is driving this convection process, is coming from radioactive decay. Okay. And what is that process doing? That drives plate tectonics. That makes our Earth look like it does today. And it's due to the, partly due to this heat engine, which is driving uh, the, the, the techno- tectonic motion. So we've talked about these elements that decay, And I want to concentrate on on two and give you a couple of little demonstrations about uh, the radioactivity of those elements. The two things I'm going to look at are potassium-40 and uranium-235, or or uranium-238, both isotopes of uranium. And what I'm going to show you involves potassium-40. hopefully switch quickly. Um, What I'm going to show to you is this material... Which is called low salt, okay you can buy this. I, you can buy this in Sainsbury's. Uh, it's called low salt, and it's low salt because it has low sodium. but actually what they 've done is they've replaced the sodium with potassium, and it's actually 66 percent potassium chloride rather than sodium chloride. And I don't know whether you can read this, but it says on the back here, low salt is, the, is a great tasting way to a healthier lifestyle, okay so Think about that, and then think about what your pre, uh, preconceptions are about radioactivity. I'm going to put some more in this thing here. And I'm going to switch on my counter. It so takes a few seconds to, to click up. You'll see that. <coughs> so... There's a bit of, a few background counts. It's a little bit high there. Yeah, it was around sort of 12 or 13. Okay. So now, so now you can see that is the the decay of potassium 40 by a, a beta process, and then there's the associated gamma ray which which we're measuring there, giving us recognizable radioactivity from the potassium. Now, of course, if, if I had a good integrating um, guide counter, I could put these bananas under there. They have a little bit less sodium, uh, potassium 40 per gram than that compound, but we could get a measurable reading from those bananas. Of course, we eat bananas um, and we take Potassium into our body. In fact, we have about 140 grams of potassium in our body. And I just want to do a quick uh, calculation. Um, so hopefully, you can all see this. This is for a 70-kilogram person. Okay. So this is what these figures are for, and they will have 140 grams of potassium in their body. Okay. K is potassium. It's a chemical it's potassium. Potassium contains two major isotopes. There's potassium 39, which is 93%, potassium 41, which is about 7%, and there's a tiny amount of potassium 40, which is 0.017%. So we know from the potassium in our body... 0.017% is potassium-40. So let's just do that little sum. And I've done this before, so I know the answer. Um, (laughs) It's 16 milligrams. And so now we've got 16 milligrams of potassium-40 now we need to multiply that, or what we call the specific activity of potassium. All that means is how radioactive is one gram of just potassium-40 atoms. And that is, so the specific activity of potassium-40 is 265,000 becquerels. That's decays per second, so that's clicks that you hear on the Geiger counter. Okay? So if we do that sum, what that says is that we have 4,240 becquerels. That's quite a lot, isn't it? 4,000 of something must be quite a lot. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it is. Uh, and what I want to do is, um, with the assistance of Giles here, who's uh, part of our radiological risk assessment for this exercise, um, <laughs> he's going to put a very uh, radioactive source there for me to uh, show you something about. Um, to turn this on again. So, Let's see, start reading. Okay, so we've got a background re- reading. It always seems to go up and then go down again, so it's, it's around about 12, 13, 14 maybe. That's the background. Now I'm going to do a contact measurement of, from this source. Okay? So this source is giving us about 800 Becquerels. Do you think that sounds very radioactive? You've got five times the amount of radioactive decay going on inside your body as what I'm measuring now. Okay? 4,420 decays per second. Just a thing to bear in mind that you know radioactivity is with us all the time. So the other thing, um, so that's potassium forty. The other element that I wanted to talk about is uranium. So what's that? Yeah, the visualizer must have. must have pressed something here. about something like that. Oh, no! There you go. So I must have bumped something. Yeah i to turn it on and off again. Okay. Maybe, maybe we can live without it for a minute. Um, what I wanted to talk about was uranium. So... When we think about the... the how, you know, where does uranium come from? It, when we think about the formation of the elements, um, then only a few elements, or very light elements, were formed in the Big Bang. Okay. And then heavier elements were formed in the centre of stars, and then only all the elements above iron were formed during a supernova explosion, where you get very large numbers of uh, neutrons produced. Um, and so, the, um, the the what that what that does that uranium is produced in the in the supernova, and it has a very large number of, of, of neutrons, in fact has 143 neutrons to its 92 protons. If you think about the n- nucleus of a uranium atom, it, it's a very difficult thing to, to imagine. You've got 92 positive charges. So they all want to repel each other. and So you've got to mediate that positive Coulombic repulsion, we call it, by putting in a lot of neutrons. And One of the, the things that makes uranium radioactive is that that's an unstable situation and it will then fall apart, okay? Um, And leaving fragments which are heavier, have too many neutrons. So that's one of the reasons why when you get the fission of uranium, then you get radioactive materials, because they have too many neutrons, and those neutrons want to decay by that sort of beta process in order to um, give you the... um, In order to reduce or increase their stability, then they uh, decay the neutrons. So, just to put um, my gloves on, I just want to show you this uh, source which I demonstrated um, just now. I have to put some gloves on. Um, and hopefully, you can see it now. Yes, that's timed out. That's good. shouldn't do this with people watching. <laughs> so how well you can see that, I will try and zoom in a bit. Do some auto-focusing. Um, those of you... But it, this, what this is, it's a nuclear fuel pellet. Okay, So this is a nuclear fuel pellet. It's not a true nuclear fuel pellet because this one is made from depleted uranium. So it's been made for my research group um, where we try and understand the chemistry of... Uh, spent nuclear fuel, um, and so this is about 0.3% of uranium-235. A normal nuclear fuel would about have about 3.5% of uranium-235. Um, but what I wanted to just get you to think about is uh, the size of that. Okay? It's also very heavy, but I can't really demonstrate that to you now. Um, it has a very high density because of the very dense nucleus of the uranium. One thing to think about is how much energy is contained in that nuclear fuel pellet. You remember I talked about the millions of electron volts which are released when you get nuclear uh, reactions. Um, so there are two basic ways in which uranium decays. One is the, what we call the alpha decay. So uranium-238 will decay by eight alpha decays down to lead-206, and uranium-235 decays by seven alpha decays down to lead-207. And by carefully measuring the ratios of lead and lead to uranium, lead to lead, lead to uranium, you actually work out the age of the Earth. Okay? So the half-life of uranium-238 is about four and a half billion years. That's what makes it such a good clock in terms of dating the Earth. The other decay, met- or the other way in which uranium decays, is what we, by what we call spontaneous fission. Okay. So that's probably what we're more sort of familiar with when we think of uranium, is that it fissions and produces huge amounts of energy. It produces about 200 mega electron volts. And so the energy produced by the uranium is enormous compared with chemical energy. Okay. So does anyone know, I did the calculation, I won't do that one for you, but does anyone know... How much coal would produce the same amount of heat energy as fissioning that fuel pellet? Any guesses? I know someone knows it. Yeah? Three times as much? Three? This 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 pellet weighs six grams. That's a bit too much. One point one tons of coal. The size of that pellet. Okay? So there's enormous energy density associated with uranium. But there's a very interesting story actually about... I should put this away. Um. So we've got this idea that uranium is extremely heavy. It has this very sort of highly charged nucleus And it's unstable. We understand the the energy that can be released from that. But the other thing that's going to be sort of... that's probably not as well understood is the fact that because you have that very highly charged nucleus and you have a lot of electrons, you get a very strange chemical behaviour for uranium. Okay? So has anyone ever looked at the periodic table and thought... Well, that 's a very neat way of describing all the elements, but what are that, what are those ones that are left outside okay <laughs> so that we all understand obviously, some school, school boy and girl chemistry um, what the periodic table represents but there 's two that are outside, and uranium is in outside of one of those, and what i mean in, in the simplest terms it means that In those two sets of uh, rows of elements, the top one is what we call the rare earths, and those have some very unusual magnetic properties, and the bottom row is what we call the actinides, which includes uranium, and both of them have what we call F-electrons. But anyway, these are just very, very strange uh, uh, orbitals for the electrons to go into, which control the chemistry of those elements and make them have quite a different chemistry to most of the other elements in the periodic table. That's why they're sitting out there. Um, And they've had an impact on the way that uranium has sort of manifest itself on the Earth. So one of the things is that as the Earth formed, um, you probably probably uh, maybe familiar with the idea that the, the densest material, the iron, sort of went to the centre of the Earth and formed the core. But why didn't the uranium go? That's much more dense than iron, but it's chemically incompatible. Okay? and So it differentiates out, so it doesn't go into the core. In fact, it doesn't go into the mantle of the Earth. And in fact, it goes into the crust of the Earth. So the original abundance of uranium in the universe is about 1 in 10 to the 12. That's 1 in a million, million atoms is uranium. But then when this differentiation occurs on the Earth, we then push it up to about 2 parts per million in the crust of the Earth. That's still a very, very small amount, right? 2 parts per million. Um, And... What I wanted to explain is that for a long time, so so you've got uranium in a a very low concentration in the Earth, and one of the things that happened on the early Earth is that there was virtually no oxygen. Now, what I'm showing here, I don't really want to... sort of. This is a bit of a complicated diagram, and I don't want to get into too much technicalities, but basically what we have, it, it shows this green area is the stability... Uh, field of water and we have this thing called the o- oxidation potential on the left axis and on the bottom axis is pH, so how acid or alkaline it is. But in the early earth, um, the water was all sort of a, in this sort of region here. No oxygen, so no oxidising potential. So all of the ions in there were op- what we call uranium 4+. Um, okay. This made the uranium virtually insoluble. Then, about 2.6 billion years ago, something happened. Okay? Microbes started to be able to photosynthesize, and they started to produce oxygen. And the oxygen content of the atmosphere went up, and the oxygen content of waters went up. And you see this thing called the, the Great Oxidation Event, where the oxygen content of the, of, of the atmosphere on Earth increased dramatically. So what this meant was that, at that point... Now you've got a lot of oxygen. Remember, we've got this very subtle chemistry associated with uranium. Now, the uranium, the water is up here somewhere in terms of the oxidation potential or how much oxygen is dissolved into it in the simplest way. And so it's soluble. And so now it can move around. And so that allows it to concentrate again. Okay. So, you know, so, so it's concentrated by a differentiation of the Earth. It's now, we've got oxygen present, it's dissolved. And then when we get to... Waters and rocks which cause um, the, the potential to drop again, it reprecipitates, but it reprecipitates in clumps, and so you get uranium ores. Okay? And in fact, this oxidation event w- was really significant in terms of the development of, of mm-hmm. minerals on Earth. So half the minerals on Earth didn't exist before this oxidation event. Okay? And before then, we had two parts per million uranium, so uranium minerals did just not not exist. Uranium just existed as little um, substitutions into other minerals. Now it can form ores. It can form uraninite, which is UO2. And so we have the idea of uranium ores. And so I just want to finish with a a really interesting story. Um, This concerns the early 1970s uh, France and the uh, uranium processing facility at Pirlat, and that time, French were importing a lot of uranium from their colonies in West Africa. And, you know, they, they used to assay all of the uranium. And, of course, it usually came in, well, it always came in at the natural abundance. This is a fixed, all uranium on Earth is meant to have this natural abundance of uranium-235. They'd started to find that they were getting some with this very low, slightly low... Um, abundance of uranium-235, but it was well above the measurement error. So it was a real phenomenon. And you think, well, that probably doesn't make much difference, right? But all civil nuclear facilities have to account for their fissile material. Okay? So if you're processing tens of thousands of tonnes of material, even though you've only got a small you know, two-decimal point uh, difference in your ratio you could have hundreds of kilograms of uranium-235 unaccounted for when the IAEA inspectors come. So this is a very serious problem for the French. And so they sent... Um, they managed to figure out that this was coming from, particularly, their mines in Gabon in West Africa. And they sent out a team from the... Uh, uh, CEA, which is the uh, Commissariat à l'énergie atomique, and they went out there, and they tested the uranium at all of these um, mine sites, and they found, in Oklo, uh, they found about a 0.5% uranium-235 anomaly. Right? So it's meant to be 0.72, it's 0.5 from that mine. and All the others were normal. So, what was going on? So, they also did some geochemical investigations, and what they found in the accompanying the depleted yet levels of uranium-235, they found stable isotopes, which are, in the ratios, typical of nuclear fission. Okay? Ruthenium, palladium... So, geochemically, they should not be there. They could only pr- be produced by um, nuclear fission. So it looked like what we're getting was there was some sort of nuclear reaction going on in that mine. Now, if we look at the... Um, the decay this is all related to the decay constants of or the half-lives of uranium 238 and uranium 235 um, and if we said that to, on t- in today's level we've got 0.72 but if we go back 2 billion years when this so this is the 2 billion years it's just around when that great oxidation event occurred and this deposit could then have been formed then we find that the, the uranium 235 content is about 3.5 to 4% in that period. So that's exactly what is used now when we enrich nuclear fuel. We go from 0.72 up to 3.5 or 4%, and then you use ordinary water as your moderator in the reactor. So what's happening here is you've got uranium, which can be moderated by normal water, uh, forming in clumps, and what happens is the, the water comes in. Slows down the neutrons. The neutrons become very efficient in fissioning the uranium, and you produce fission products, which, we, which the, the CEA scientists discovered. and produce lots of heat. So these things would produce about 100 kilowatts. It would boil off the water, and the reaction would stop. There's no moderator. Then it would cool down, water would come in, reactors would start again. Reactors run for several hundred thousand years. Um, and in fact, they found 16 of these reactor pods. In, in Oklo. And I found one more 40 kilometres away in Bangombé. But this is a natural reactor. okay? Um, so that's just summarizes that just summarises that. So, first nuclear pile to go critical on Earth, we all thought it was Fermi's experiment at Stagg Field in Chicago, CP1. Okay. It's not. It's It's number 18, okay, critical assembly of uranium uh, on Earth. Something you might not have been aware of before. Something which happened fortuitously for the French, I think. It might have been everything, but um, it's a poster, French poster. Um, So they say the reactors are 100% natural. Um, So in 1974, which was just after this... Set of natural reactors were found. Valerie Giscard d'Estaing embarked on a massive building of nuclear reactors in France. In fact, they built 58 nuclear reactors over the next sort of 15 to 20 years. And this was all part of the background music for it, that this was a natural process. I mean, he also bribed the mayors of all the cities as well, but it was, a, you know, it's all moving in the right direction. So 100% nuclear reactors are natural. Um, so, um, and one interesting thing that you can take from that is now in France, each citizen emits five tons of carbon per year. In the UK, we do 11 tons of carbon per year. That's simply because of that nuclear uh, fleet, which was built by Descang, on the back of some good news from West Africa. Thank you very much. <laughs> so um, I think we'll let Jerry go. I'm and then we'll take questions. We'll take questions then. at the end. OK. Thank you.
2: I'm going to talk to you a bit about why it's so difficult to explain to the general public about the health consequences of radiation. Oops, that's the end of it. Oh, no sorry. <laughs> Let me just whiz back to the beginning. Shut your eyes for a minute. Okay. So it's nice to be back in Cambridge. My kids were born here. I used to drag them to all the science things. So I'm going to talk about the health risks from nuclear power accidents now. Who knows what was special about Spider-Man? Somebody was, tell me, what what made him special? Exactly. And, of course, we all know radioactive spiders exist, and when they bite you, you get superpowers. That's why people don't like spiders. No, I'm kidding. Um, And what about Bart Simpson? Where did that three-eyed fish come from? Fishing in the nuclear ponds. Um, Sadly, both of these are completely incorrect scientifically, but they make good myths, and that's the problem we have. We have a a huge difficulty now separating myth from reality, not only in terms of radiation, but in terms of all sorts of things in life. So I'm going to go through some of the science and and some of the rationale that that helps us understand about the real health risks of something like nuclear power. So we have a real problem with radiation. We have a long history of being made to fear radiation. Plenty of you in this audience are elderly like me and were probably born in the 60s and some of you possibly in the 50s. So you will remember all the the, the uh, documentaries and things we were shown that made us feel that radiation was very, very dangerous, particularly when it came to nuclear weapons. That's quite useful politically, obviously, because there was a political directive behind it. And sadly, science does get used very effectively by politicians. But we converse to that. We have a general acceptance of medical radiation exposure. Most of us would not think twice if we were offered to X-ray. We are offered it for a reason. You don't worry about the radiation exposure. And what fascinates me is the two cultures that have a real thing about radiation, the Germans and the Japanese, love sitting in radioactive spots. And in fact, in some areas in Japan, they actually have on the walls, we have put more radon in here because it's healthy. And you just... I don't understand why a a nation that is so frightened of radiation, for good reasons, is so unworried when it comes from a natural source. It's almost as if it's natural, it's fine. Whereas actually most of the nasty things I can think of in nature that will kill you are purely natural things, neurotoxins, snake venom. They're all natural things, but they're also inherently dangerous. But we do have this problem in our minds of anything that's man-made is much more dangerous than anything that's natural. There's a relationship between dose and response to all toxins and we tend to think the radiation is special it's not it's just another toxin and your bodies are exposed to loads of toxins every day but that dose response relationship is very important Uh, there's an individual dose from radiation in the environment you've just seen ian demonstrate some of this we can't avoid radiation if you want to live on this planet you have to accept you're going to be exposed to radiation you want to go and live on another planet, you might get even more radiation, so better, probably better stay here. And there is this perception that the individual dose, and remember the dose is what gives you the health effect, from nuclear accidents is much, much higher than it actually is. We also have a huge problem in trying to communicate this, because we are scientists, we like jargon. We feel secure if we're using jargon. But that doesn't really help the general public understand. So we use lots of different measurements. You'll hear grays, you'll hear millisieverts, you'll hear sieverts. You'll have excess relative risk, you'll hear Peter Becquerels, Becquerels. What the hell does that mean to most people? It's also, of course, nuclear power is a political football. Nuclear weapons are a political football. When politics gets involved with science, it's generally bad news. There is masses of misinformation out there on the Internet... And there is very little understandable science, because the science is complex. And I get lots of journalists coming to say, well, can you do that in about three words? You go, no, because I have to explain the issues that you need to take into account. And it's very, very difficult, actually, trying to pracy your scientific knowledge into something that is packageable for a news report. And that's a definite skill. And if anybody wants to, to go and learn how to do that, we need better science communicators. And then we have, from industry, this constant emphasis on safety. I have never been anywhere else where you start a meeting by saying, we'll have two minutes while we think about safety. If we did that in hospitals, where people are sort of ripping people open, sticking their hands in and doing things with their hearts, we'd never do anything. We know what we do in terms of medicine is inherently unsafe. But we don't have to think about it all the time, being unsafe. It's It's an interesting way that... It's this constant emphasis of safety doesn't make people feel more safe. It makes them feel unsafe. You have pros and cons. With everything, you have pros and cons. And this is a big ipsos Mori poll uh, in 23 countries. So it's not just us. Everybody else shares these same worries. But I think the two things that really cause most concern for the general public is the impact of radiation on health and the possibility for disaster. Now, I hate the term disaster here. Chernobyl was a mess, yes, absolutely. Fukushima wasn't a disaster. It was an accident that we turned into a disaster by pure bad communication. And we have very, very short memories. We tend to think that, oh, it's only Chernobyl and Fukushima. We weren't exposed to radiation before then. Well, actually, if you look at the amount that was released, of iodine 131 and Cesium-137, which are the two things that we're most concerned about in terms of human health, you could see there was much more released from the above-ground tests in the 1960s. And I always say, well, this was America. There were American bombs. Actually, there were our bombs. They were testing as well, so we can't get out of that one either. But just compare that with what came out of Chernobyl and what came out of Fukushima. And there is data that's still available on the Internet where you can actually plot the amount of cesium and strontium in our milk in the UK as a result of those tests. And I can tell you the blip that you see from Chernobyl is minuscule compared with the blip in the early 1960s when I was a kid and drinking milk. <laughs> so it's quite interesting that we have this tiny sort of memory lapse that we think it was only nuclear power accidents that have caused uh, radioactive discharge. In actual fact, the above-ground test caused far more. Whoops. So the next problem you have is trying to work out the dose. Now, dosimetrists are very strange people. They tend to be physicists, and they also tend to be extremely good at maths, which means having a conversation with them is actually quite difficult. Um, But they have to take into account lots and lots of different things when they're trying to work out the individual dose to people. So one of the first things... I'm sorry my slides weren't sized for this. One of the first things is you need to know which way the wind is blowing when you've had a nuclear accident. Because what we're concerned about is the volatile isotopes. The heavy stuff doesn't go anywhere, it stays around the plant. The volatile stuff is what gets into the communities. And because it's volatile, it's blown about by the wind. And of course, the wind direction changes all the time, as you're about to find out when you walk out of here, because it'll be blowing a gale again. But this is just the wind pattern for the week during which Chernobyl was was emitting radiation. The other thing is where you live. Where you live makes a big difference to how you eat, what you do. And if you live in a rural area, particularly in a rural area around Chernobyl, where people used to have their own cow in their backyard, the cow used to graze on the grass, they used to go out, bump the cow's tail, take the milk away and drink it straight away. Your milk takes about a a week before it comes back to you. So any iodine, because it has a short half-life of eight days, that was in the milk that the cow produced it has gone off to the creamery and come back to you. It's lost half of its radioactivity in that week while it's coming back to you. So the where you live is going to make a difference. Your dietary habits are going to make a difference and of course here you've got loads of concrete structures that protect you very effectively from radiation. So where you're living and what you're doing is very important. And this is to remind me to talk about mushrooms. Mushrooms are great and in most of Eastern Europe they're used as a meat substitute. So people go out into the forest, they get their mushrooms, they stand by the side of the road and they sell them. Uh, but unfortunately mushrooms take up a lot of cesium. So one of the things that they were most concerned about was, you know, were people going to carry on eating mushrooms? And the Swedish actually gave some really good advice and sort of said don't eat X number of kilograms of mushrooms. Try chopping X number of kilograms of mushrooms. It's a hell of a lot of mushrooms. You're very unlikely to consume that every week. Then you have the problem that you have to take into account physics, uh, physical half-lives. Then you have to take into account chemistry. Does your element that's been released go anywhere particularly in your body? Does it get bound there? Then you have what is called the biological half-life, So, something that has a physical half-life also has a biological half-life, and that's the amount of time it takes from that chemical element to come into your body and leave again. Because our bodies don't stay like this. I keep saying that, hoping my body will just disappear (laughs) by half. It never works. Um, But our, our bodies are actually changing all the time, which is why you have to eat and why you have to do other things as well. But you're constantly taking things out and losing things. So there's a biological half-life that has to be taken into account as well. We'll do a bit more about that in a minute. And then you get maths as well, because the likelihood of getting cancer is actually a probabilistic. So you have a real problem. Most of us struggle with one science. Trying to struggle with three sciences and maths is a bit much for anybody. But that's what you need to do if you're actually going to work out what the dose is to an individual tissue. Now... Ian's already covered this, but the important thing on this slide is that alpha and beta particles, if they're going to hurt you, need to enter your body. You've got to breathe them in or you've got to eat them, okay? And Litvinenko, who was the Russian who was killed by polonium-210, which incidentally is, in, is, present in, is present in cigarette smoke as well, um, you could follow the radioactive trail all around London because it was all alpha, and so if you had the right detectors, you could, you could actually pick that up. But most people were blissfully unaware and didn't worry about it at all. So alpha particles don't do any damage unless you eat them. In fact, they tried to poison him three times before they got enough polonium into him to kill him. Gamma radiation has no charge. It's a waveform. And actually, waveforms can wiggle through your body without actually hitting any of your important structures. So all of those give slightly different doses. Alpha, because they're a bit like a truck smacking into your DNA, carry a weighting factor. So alpha radiation, although it's difficult to get into you unless you eat it or drink it or inhale it, you can stop it with your your skin, actually can do more damage if it gets inside you. So now we know about all the dangers, how do we work out what this might do? And this is a graph. I'm a scientist. I have to show a graph. So here we have a whole load of very big cohorts of people. It doesn't really matter what they are, but the LSS at the top we'll talk a bit more about. That's a lifespan study in Japan. And what's been done here is just simply put all the information out of these different cohorts and plotted them on the one graph. This is the plot of people in Hiroshima who were irradiated as a result of the atomic bombs. And you can see here, this area here, Each of these is a dot, by the way, and each of them represents a person. You can't see the individual dots, but you can see there's a a space there. There are individual dots there. They're mainly from where people were sheltering inside concrete houses. But you can see this area here is where the blast was worse and most people died. And then you get a decreasing uh, dose as you go away from that epicentre. But this is one kilometre and this is two kilometre, those rings. If you look at these points, these points here, given by that red circle, represent these points here. Now, here you'd look at that and say, yes, I can easily put a straight line through those points. But you've got very big 95% confidence intervals, which suggests that actually they could be anywhere within those levels. But you'd look at that and say, yeah, straight line, can draw that, no problem. But what we are more worried about is this low-dose area here, okay? So I've just taken that area there and expanded it. Now, look at all those dots here from these big studies. They're above and below the line. So that suggests that some of these may actually be beneficial, because if you have something below the x-axis, it's a negative relationship rather than a positive relationship. And if you put the 95 confidence intervals and all those points, they're all over the place. If I was to show you this plot in any other thing other than radiation, you'd all go, and uh, say, oh, yeah, this, this drug is wonderful, at these low doses, look at the fantastic effect it's having. you go, no, it's not. But it's interesting, with radiation, we're still looking at this going, well, it's clearly there's a straight line from zero all the way through, whereas actually, we haven't really got a clue what's going on in those points down there. But we have developed this thing called we, we call the linear no-threshold hypothesis, And this is a good lesson for all the kids. Do not have a hypothesis you can never test because we can't test that hypothesis because it's impossible to have no radiation at all because we're all surrounded by radiation. So we have a problem because all of our safety regulations are based on the LNT hypothesis. Okay, so what does this actually mean? Okay, so this is 100 Americans. Not that I don't like Americans. It's just they have really good health data. So we have 100 Americans, all the ladies are wearing trousers because we must be careful that equality and diversity, and they're all one colour because I couldn't be bothered to colour them in different colours. How many of these people, if I gave each of them 100 millisieverts, do you think it would be likely we'll get a a cancer caused by the radiation? Not necessarily die from it because we can treat cancer quite well. Go on, somebody give me a guess. Ian, shh, Giles, shh. (laughs) Just one, yeah, just one of them. Now, how many of them do you think will get cancer from other causes? 42. Therein lies your problem. At these low doses, how do we separate that one cancer from all of these caused by other causes? And actually, do I really care? I'm more interested about the 42 cancers here than the one here. We seem to have got things out of it, a little bit out of perspective. So, very quickly, the radionuclides of concern for the population at large are iodine-131 and uh, and cesium-137. The likely health effect is determined by the dose um, that the isotopes give to the tissues within the body. Low dose, smaller effect. Large dose, larger effect. And the easy way to remember that is one paracetamol (coughs) will see your headache off. One box of paracetamol will see you off. The dose to an individual can be affected by loads of different things, what they're doing, their diet, and all the rest of it, so you have to be careful that you take that into account. Iodine has a very short physical half-life of eight days, but concentrates in the thyroid, which is in your neck just here. Its biological half-life is about 100 days, so there's a really good chance that if you take in a dose of iodine, most of that iodine is going to release its radiation during the time that it's actually sitting in your thyroid gland. Cesium has a much longer physical half-life, about 30 years. It's not concentrated any tissue. It's like sodium. It goes everywhere. And its biological half-life is also approximately 100 days, which means actually it's quite boring because most of it comes out the way it went in and doesn't release its radiation. So the doses will be much lower from cesium. Even though people confuse in their mind a longer-lived physical half-life means a higher dose, it doesn't. It actually means the opposite. So doses in individual tissues are lower from cesium than from iodine. And this gives you the doses, again, from Chernobyl. Again, you can see that inverse square law. The further you are away from where the reactor is, the lower your dose is. So the average dose in contaminated areas of Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia, between the years 1986, this is quite a long time period as well, Over we've measured it, for exposure was about 10 millisieverts. So, during all of that time, the dose to individuals was about 10 millisievers. Now, that is the equivalent of one of these, the CT scan. That's why we don't see an effect from cesium, because the dose is actually so low. We do see thyroid cancer from the iodine, but we don't see anything from the cesium. So, these are the health effects from Chernobyl. There were 28 people who ha- actually had very, very high doses. These were the people who were dropping boron on the, on the fire to, to calm it down. They had acute radiation syndrome, and half of those died. There were 15 deaths from thyroid cancer in 25 years. I should say half of those have died. Half of them are still alive, and many of the deaths were actually nothing to do with the radiation. What somebody died in a car accident, several of them had liver cirrhosis. Not surprised out there. I've been in vodka drinking competitions. Um, You know, there are lots of reasons why people die. Some of them had pneumonia, not related to the radiation. 15 deaths from thyroid cancer we've had in 25 years because the best thing about thyroid cancer is if you get it, it is very unlikely to kill you. There's a 1% death rate associated with thyroid cancer because we can cure it with high doses of radioiodine. Oh, this is hurting my brain. (laughs) Um, So there you are. We we estimate there'll be between 4,000 and 16,000 excess thyroid cancer cases because we can't pinpoint which cancer was caused by the radiation because we don't have biomarkers to do it. We don't know actually how many you can really attribute to that radiation because you get screening effects and things coming in. If you look for something, you find it. Uh, There's no evidence of increased thyroid cancer outside the three republics, that's Belarus, Ukraine and Russia. And again, no effect on fertility and all the rest of it. You can just read that. That isn't what you'd think if you actually read a lot of the stuff that's on the internet. That's the truth. That is loads of scientists sitting in there in a little room, arguing amongst themselves, looking at all the data, going, which is a good study, which is a bad study? That is the truth. So the only health consequence from the physical exposure to radiation from Chernobyl has been thyroid cancer in children. Why children? They drink a lot of milk, so their dose is higher, but also they have a small thyroid, and actually the radiation effect is greater in the smaller thyroid, and their thyroid is still growing, and that is the key thing. You still need the cell division to propagate the original starting of, of thyroid cancer. And those doses were due to high thyroid doses of, of more than 100 millisieverts of iodine in fallout. The most damaging affair health effect has been the psychological stress due to the fear of radiation. That's been far worse for the population. Being scared something was going to happen to you for 30-odd years is much worse than actually the radiation. For Kashima versus Chernobyl, the mean doses to the thyroid were 100-fold less than in the Chernobyl evacuees, so you'd expect less effect. Um, Most of them had less than two millisieverts in the first four months post-accident, so that's less than even an an extra annual year's dose. There are no discernible health health effects expected from the radiation at these doses, but 2,000 people died as a result of evacuation. There was a panic to evacuate. There were good reasons why there should have been evacuation, because there'd also been a you know, slight earthquake and a tsunami, which meant the infrastructure wasn't very good. But there is no doubt that there were a lot of people who were evacuated because people were scared of the radiation. Just get them out of there. Whatever you do, get them out of there. And 2,000 people died of that. Mainly older people or people with complex needs who were moved from medical establishments without the, the proper uh, environment around them. And then we all forget between 15,000 and 20,000 from the tsunami itself. Everybody seems to have forgotten the tsunami. That killed huge numbers of people and dislocated an awful lot of Japanese families. So let's just do a quick comparison of things. Mega City, London, instead of living in Inverness, that's going to increase your risk of mortality by 2.8%. If you live with a smoker, very effective at getting my my daughter's boyfriend to stop smoking, it's 1.7%. If you were one of the people who was clearing up the mess after Chernobyl, so your dose was an awful lot higher than most of the local population, it's actually only 1% increased mortality. And if you were one of the ones who received less dose, it's even less than that. So actually, living with a smoker is more dangerous than clearing up Chernobyl. <laughs> and this is one of my heroes, David Spiegelhalter, who I think explains risk beautifully. And this was in, after the, uh, the alcohol paper that came out. And he says at the end of it, given the pleasure presumably associated with moderate drinking, claiming there is no safe level does not seem an argument for for abstention. There's no safe level of driving. I've got to go back down the M25. Um, But government do not recommend people avoiding driving. Come to think of it, there's actually no safe level of living. But nobody would recommend abstention. (laughs) We need to get our head around risk, particularly when it comes to nuclear power. Because otherwise, if we don't, we're going to consider every potential risk, except the risks of avoiding all risks. We've got to balance the risks to the environment and to individuals. Two more slides left. i put this slide up, because I think it really does encapsulate what we've been trying to say. Uh, you can hardly see the number of deaths from nuclear on there. But look at the number of deaths per terawatt hour from coal. Coal is a killer, It kills your lungs, it kills your heart, and look at that. Yes, there are other things that we could do, but actually nuclear is the only one of those that is all on all the time. Solar and wind are great, but I've got a solar panel on my house, and it's bloody useless at the moment. (laughs) It's great last summer, I didn't have a gas bill for three months, but it's totally useless now. So, these are my take-home messages to you. Health effects of radiation relate to dose. So if you're reading anything, ask, what is the dose here? Individual doses from nuclear accidents are much, much lower than people believe. This is not a nuclear bomb. It is a nuclear power plant. The two things are different. An energy mix that favors nuclear renewables over carbon-based technologies will reduce the health consequences (coughs) of particulate emissions and climate change. And we have to be aware of the fact that we are heading for a total disaster unless we get our act together. If you want a modern society, we've got to generate electricity cheaply and reliable. It's no good saying we want electric cars because we have to charge them. And we have to charge them at night because that's when we don't need them. So where's the sun? And I can't guarantee it's going to be windy overnight. So we're going to have to have baseload in order for us to be able to charge our cars. And we should really start using scientific facts rather than urban myths to decide our future energy policy but then it is down to politicians, so uh, we'll see. Okay, there's some other places you might go and want to read things up here. This is a recent restatement that's been done by a group in Oxford with loads of us involved and my god did we argue over that just to get the wording right it's designed to be read by history graduate and they're the sort of people who advise ministers so some of it is quite easy reading but if you want to go and look into into it in more depth there's also a lot more information there thank you very much
0: um, I, i'm afraid we're at time um, but i'm sure our speakers won't mind staying another 10 minutes for questions yeah, yeah, so that, but if people have um buses to catch or want to leave if you want to um, sneak out now and then we'll d- do 10 minutes of questions. So,
2: yeah, yeah. So, you have to shout so everybody can hear. Okay, uh, one of
0: the things that I haven't picked up on here is well, I haven't read all
1: the cons because they disappear from the screen before I can read them all. Was um, this business about half a life, so, you know, um, terror
0: years or something, which means that stuff we don't want is left over. Uh, has to be disposed of, and nobody really knows what to do with it. Now, I understand that it's actual risk of being here is rather low, but I, I don't know, it's like you know, having a tornado going towards your house and really thinking, is it going to miss me or is it going to hit me? There's going to be a lot of this stuff.
1: And Not as much as you might well, think, yeah, actually, I, that's another misconception. That? Yeah. So how much, how much nuclear waste do you think is in this country? I mean, just in terms of the volume. I have no idea. I'm okay. happy if you tell me. Yeah. Okay, so if you take if you take the the inventory which published by the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority. Yeah. Okay, so you can can you imagine Wembley Stadium? Yeah. So if you stacked it on the pitch, yeah. the intermediate level waste would be about forty meters high, stacked on the pitch. And that's all the nuclear waste that we've been generating for the last you know, sixty years or so. Both civil and military. Okay. Okay. So I don't know if that's uh, high-level waste would would cover about two percent of that. So sort of a small stack in the penalty area, sort of thing. <laughs> it's not a huge amounts. No, indeed. I mean that's what I wanted to hear, but I didn't get it. I'm by get it. Yeah. If you think of the,
2: you know, I'm coming from South Wales originally, and if you think of the coal mining waste that was there, you know, huge amounts of waste Where? Sorry? in in South Wales. Oh yeah, what was that of that village? Uh, ABOVAN, ABOVAN, yeah. yeah. But I mean, there was masses of waste there. So that gives you a sort of comparison about the amount of waste we produce with all of our nuclear inventory compared with what we were producing just to get the coal out of the ground, never mind burning it. Yeah. You know, it, it, we, have, we have lots of misconceptions about this. And it's you know, not a comment on, uh, about anybody on this, but it is true. Even my husband, who has lived with me for 35 years, who did the same degree as me, keeps going, you sure? So it just shows you how hardwired this is right, in the us.
0: Media, they love
2: us well, yes, that, that is the problem. Unfortunately, the media, they were better in, in Fukushima because yeah. they actually came and talked to us and they started to listen to us. There's a whole group of us now who said, if you want a question answered, come and talk to us. This is our field and we can give you the scientific evidence and we can back it up with papers. And be careful when you put things out into the media that you can actually back up the claims, because a lot of them don't stack up. <coughs>
0: okay. Thank you. Yes, I was curious about this slide when you compare the number of deaths generated by nuclear power compared to other power sources. And I was curious to know, for instance, how does hydroelectric power cause deaths?
2: Hydro- hydroelectric power is a very uh-huh. interesting. Okay. Yeah, um, so if I can get it back for you. Hydroelectric power is, is interesting because actually most of the time it's pretty good. But when a dam bursts, it kills a lot of people. And that's, we have had actually quite a large... I mean was one in Laos recently we've had quite a number of dam bursts and they kill thousands of people. What about wind Well, it's actually two, 200 people a year fall-off ruse while installing nu- uh, solar panels, all right? So, you... And, and, you know, people say, well, what about mining uranium? Actually, mining is also included in this because you have to mine the rare earths to go in your solar panels. <coughs> and it's interesting, we focus... In, on nuclear, we focus on the whole cycle. If you look at solar and wind and actually ask, well, what do you have to get out of the ground? How are you going to dispose of what you've got afterwards? That actually isn't taken into account for most of the renewables, and we should be looking at it in the whole and comparing them as equals, not trying to sort of say, well, what about this, what about that, in one particular thing without thinking about the others. Um, Doesn't the environmental movement itself have quite a responsibility?
1: I mean, I know that um, Jim Ludlock is speaking uh, later this week, uh, uh, and he was one of the first to actually openly change his mind about I think most of the other
2: organisations are still very hostile to nuclear power. It, it's interesting, actually. I would never, ever have spoken to somebody who was in the Green Movement until Fukushima happened. And our local Green Group in our village said, will you, I've heard you on the radio, would you come and talk to us? And I thought, oh, God, I'm going to get stoned. This is going to be awful. They were great. They were all intelligent people and they wanted to know the facts. And after that, I got, ended up talking to George Monboyo, um, not that, that did him much good with the Green Movement, because he published that, but in The Guardian saying, you know, they've been lying to us. I, I speak to a lot of people around the world. Michael Schellenberg in the States has got tons of emails on my phone today about something. I would never have dreamed of speaking to them, because I automatically assumed they would not want to listen. Many of those people who've actually looked at the scientific facts and have got access to scientists to talk about this are actually saying, you know, we've got this wrong. And for them, that must be one hell of a thing to do is actually change your mind so publicly as some of those people have done. As scientists, we question what we do the whole time. You should always be looking at new evidence. You should always be saying, does my hypothesis stand or not? We're used to that. So some of these individuals in the green movements, it's extremely hard to do that. And good on those who've actually done it. We could do with more of them and there are still some mad people who are publishing things one of whom published something today which is totally unfounded in science and it, the difficulty is actually getting people to believe the science rather than the mess really hard perhaps that's because we're not good enough communicators maybe we should be using some of these green green movement people who are by and large much better people focused than we are to talk to the general public perhaps it's us perhaps it's our fault because of the iodine-131. Your thyroid needs iodine to make the hormones that it needs. Iodine's normally very rare. So the thyroid goes, oh, iodine, Hmm, let's have that, and literally sucks it up. It's It's got a pump that takes it inside. And, of course, when you have a nuclear accident, you've suddenly got loads of iodine around. It doesn't care it's radioactive. It doesn't know the difference. So it takes it into the gland. So it concentrates in the gland. It's the only tissue in the body that actually binds it there. If you're lactating, you have an iodine pump to take iodine into the breast because you want your children to have a lot of iodine in their milk to help their thyroids develop. Not radioactive iodine, but a normal iodine. (laughs) So, but unusually, the difference between the two tissues is the breast tissue doesn't bind it. It doesn't hold on to it. It goes in and out and in and out. Whereas the thyroid takes it up, binds it in the middle of these follicles, and there's sort of of a colloid in the middle of a circle of cells, So the radioactive iodine sits there going, ping, 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 hitting the cells. And that's when you get the the higher doses, particularly in the child thyroid, because it's so much smaller, that causes the the thyroid cancers. (coughs) But they are very treatable. The best targeted treatment we have for any cancer is iodine-131, ironically. So radiation can be your friend.
0: Would you go and live
2: in Next. I would, actually. There wouldn't be an awful lot to do. It's got no atmosphere. There's a ferris wheel there. <laughs> yeah, there's a ferris wheel there. It always gets photographed. And I love the sound. They go, oh, it's so radioactive. And you hear the birds singing in the trees. You think, mm, don't think that's the case. A good friend of mine, Jim Smith, has spent an awful lot of time out there. And if you haven't seen it yet on the iPlayer on BBC, in the BBC World section, there's, a, there's a, I think it's Our Earth or our planet or something like that, there's a Chernobyl program in there, which Jim has just made, um, which actually shows him stomping around the Red Forest, going, actually, what I got on the plane coming here was higher than the dose I've got in my dosimeter here.
0: So it does nicely show you that. Put the, um, put the lid on it again, then. Sorry? Why is it so important? Yeah, it's
2: because they're worried if it collapses, it'll create a dust cloud. And again, with most things, it's actually not the danger it's going to physically do to you. It's the reputational damage. If that collapsed, you can imagine you'd have people crawling all over Ukraine and Belarus, moaning and, and creating a scene which the politicians don't want to see. So the best way to do it is to enclose it. There is a lot of very highly radioactive stuff still buried underneath where the core melted down, so you don't want people stomping over that. But that's the reason that they're doing that. A lot of it is to do with politics. It's like why they built the ice wall in Fukushima. I took the guy who chairs UNSKI around Fukushima. I've been around five times now with different groups. He sat with his head in his hands going, dear God, what have we done? Why couldn't we explain this better? Because the Japanese built an ice wall to stop any of the rainwater that was coming down, going underneath the power station, and therefore picking up radioactive contamination, getting out into the bay. It's the Pacific, for God's sake, you know. The dilution factor would be huge. But reputationally, the fishermen didn't want anybody thinking that their fish might be radioactive. So the Japanese gov- government built this ice wall. Matt, you should see the amount of money that's been spent. Huge amounts of money. Sorry, you had a question as well?
1: Well, it's not a question really, it's a, more a comment. Um, Uh, When radioactivity was first discovered,
0: Marie Curie found, discovered Mm radium. Suddenly,
1: they were making radium paint. Yep, and uh, the brushes and.
0: and
2: No 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 and they were the radium dial painters and the way they used to be able to paint the very fine to lick their brushes so the radium went straight into their jaws But Interestingly you also got a similar thing like that called fossey jaw from people who used to paint phosphorus on dials We don't remember that in quite the same way that we remember the radium dial painters But yes that was direct radium in them that one. was just bad health and safety I think don't think it was that that actually did it Yeah it, it, I think it was the war, the, the, yeah, the use of, yeah, then that's where we have the confusion in our minds. We can't dislocate nuclear power from atomic bombs, and they are totally different things, and they are totally different effects. Totally different radiation comes out of them. And, and we have a real problem dissociating those two things.
0: He's coming down towards us, I (laughs) can (laughs) see. Thank you, on that note, um, if you join me in thanking our speakers.
2: Thank you very much for coming. Don't have nightmares, as Nick Ross used to say. (laughs)